This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. Counting down to the midterms when, oh my lord, a megaton of news exploding over the political world. Donald Trump's home, legal home. Remember, he moved to Florida legally, his legal home in Mar-a-Lago, raided by the Federal Bureau of Investigations. We get into all of it. What happened, why it might have happened, what we are looking for next, the political fallout, all of it in this episode. And by the way, the other Republican megastar in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis, is taking his show on the road, lending his credibility and star power to a few Senate hopefuls. But one of them is not on the list. We will discuss exactly who that is and why that is. It's Dr. Oz. But we'll discuss why. But now you know it's Dr. Oz. Also in this episode, we are going to talk to a man for whom is the master of the overlap between marketing and politics. He's got a brand new book out called Marketer in Chief. If you like when we get into nitty gritty, you know, uh, uh, how the sausage is made kind of stuff, you're really, really, really going to like this interview. But enough preamble, enough pussyfooting around. Let's get to the reason why you clicked on this episode. But first... Good morning, George. This may be the most politically explosive raid ever undertaken by the FBI. You hear that sound? It is the sound of the police. We're going to begin with the news right now. I want to get to the investigation of former President Trump. The twice impeached president and very much disgraced president. You know, welcome to politics in, you know, in the, in the you know, 2000s. Um, well, it's a breathtaking moment to have a raid like this on a former president and potentially the future opponent of the current president. The raid heard round the world. From Politico, the Florida raid, which one person said took hours, resulted in the seizure of paper records, according to one person familiar with the development, who also noted that Trump attorney Christina Bob was present during the search. It was a historic step by the Justice Department and the FBI to investigate the residence of a former president who was battling an increasingly complex thicket of legal threats. Oh, well, I, for one, was very annoyed by this raid personally because 
I was writing a column about Alex Jones on my Substack, and I wanted to take another day to publish it and give it a little polish. But as soon as I saw this was happening, I knew that this was the only thing that anybody was going to care about, and I published early. I know, I know, I know. Cry me a river. Preferably after you subscribe to my Substack, freepoliticalnewsletter.com. But back to the raid. I mean, honestly, I I really, you guys know that I am not a big doomsayer, but stuff like this worries me. It worries me because I don't know a lot about what's happening. No one knows a lot about what's happening. I've always been one to say that if Donald Trump is guilty of something, I am very, very, very excited to see the evidence. Not necessarily because I think that he needs to go down, but because these are extraordinary charges and they require extraordinary evidence to back them up. And I do not want to hold the failures of the Ukraine investigation or the Mueller investigation or any of the Russia investigations up to this because everything is separate. But in the absence of knowledge, with leaks coming out saying that this raid that happened yesterday was about documents for the National Archive that may or may not have accidentally been sent to Mar-a-Lago when Trump has already sent back boxes of documents. Ah. I just can't help but worry. I'm not saying that this is going to happen. And by the way, anybody who tells you that they know what's happening is an absolute liar here. We are all in the dark. Everybody is in the dark. So in the absence of knowing anything, my mind does go back to those other investigations and thinking about all the possibilities of evidence that were going to be unearthed and the fact that, well, OP didn't deliver. So what exactly did happen? Let's read from the Miami Herald, which did a very good job of, uh, uh, I think, breaking this down, at least on short notice. Quote, the source said FBI agents obtained a search warrant from a federal magistrate judge in West Palm Beach to gather dozens of boxes containing alleged classified materials that Donald Trump had taken with him when he left the White House on January 2021. I'm going to pause here so I can talk about this magistrate. It is a federal magistrate located in Florida that has to sign this warrant. Sourcing has been fairly consistent, at least early on, that the highest levels of the Federal Bureau of Investigations knew that this was taking place. The Biden administration says that they learned on Twitter, which, you know, I've got, I wonder, I wonder, but still, that's what they say. We're going to take them at their word. The magistrate, however... And again, evolving story. A lot of this might change by the time that you listen to this. Maybe this has been proven or disproven. But the magistrate that is listed on the website as having seen a warrant around this time is a magistrate by the name of Bruce Reinhardt. You're probably going to hear that name a lot if you are swimming in conservative circles over the next few weeks to months because Bruce Reinhardt 
was a former prosecutor in South Florida before he went into private practice. The day after he went into private practice, he began defending, you guessed it, Jeffrey Epstein. It was in that initial Florida case against Epstein that Reinhardt helped defend that Epstein was eventually let off the hook. Reinhardt went on to become a federal magistrate, and now he's involved in this. Does it have anything to do with this raid? Probably not. Will we hear a lot about it? Yes. Oh, friends. Yes, we will. We continue now from the Herald. Federal agents were able to establish probable cause for the warrant because Trump and his lawyers had already turned over some classified documents that had been sought by the National Archives and Record Administration. Agents suspected that Trump was unlawfully holding other classified documents from his presidency in his private club and residence, Mar-a-Lago, which is the crux of the investigation led by the FBI and Justice Department in Washington, D.C. During Monday's raid, FBI agents worked in quote-unquote taint teams while gathering and separating alleged classified materials to ensure that none was privileged correspondence between Trump and his lawyers, which would be off-limits to investigators and prosecutors. As you might imagine, Donald Trump himself was furious. Hold up in Trump Tower in New York City, not at Mar-a-Lago. He sent this to his listserv. These are dark times for our nation. My beautiful home, Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida, is currently under siege, raided, and occupied by a large group of FBI agents. Nothing like this has ever happened to a president of the United States before. After working and cooperating with the relevant government agencies, this unannounced raid on my home was not necessary or appropriate. It is prosecutorial misconduct, the weaponization of the justice system, and an attack by the radical left Democrats who desperately don't want me to run for president in 2024, especially based on recent polls. And who will likewise do anything to stop Republicans and conservatives in the upcoming midterm elections. Such an assault could only take place in a broken third world country. Sadly, America has now become of one of those countries, corrupt on a level not seen before. They even broke into my safe, exclamation point. There was more to the email, but you can look it up if you want. The great Olivia Nudzi of New York Magazine did a very quick article about what Donald Trump keeps in his safes. <laughs> she uh, was, was told that it's mostly tic tacs and money cash money. Apparently, Donald Trump does not like to use credit cards. He likes to travel in cash. And uh, uh, that's what he normally keeps in his safes. Although also Tic Tacs. Apparently, he also keeps Tic Tacs in there. Uh, worth noting that Eric Trump, who you heard in the montage at the beginning of this segment saying, welcome to the politics in the 2000s, says that there was absolutely nothing in the safe. The two things that Donald Trump would most likely be raided for are what well, we've heard already, this issue with the National Archives, and of course, January 6th, as has been talked ad nauseum during the hearings. Either of those, in my opinion, raises to the level of raiding a former president's house. 
in my opinion, if you are going to raid a public figure of that level of notoriety, you better be leading trafficked children out of the back door. You need to hear the crinkle of the Mylar blanket because the precedent that is set by using the Justice Department to go after somebody of Trump's stature for National Archive stuff. I mean, the, 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 the biggest thing that you could say with January 6th is that if you can prove, if there's something in Donald Trump's office that without a shadow of a doubt proves that he organized and directed January 6th, I think you're at the beginning of the threshold to justify that. Anything less than the organization and direction of exactly what happened. I want you to go over there, you to break in. I want you to poop in Nancy Pelosi's closet. All right, riot on three. One, two, three, riot. Like, if it's not that, it's legitimately worrying to me. Because this stuff doesn't just stop. It seesaws. Power goes back and forth. Now, the other side of this that I saw circulating throughout Twitter was the idea that according to U.S. Code 2071 regarding concealment, removal, and mutilation of documents, if you are in violation of such a code, which Donald Trump might be if he has documents that he shouldn't have in Mar-a-Lago, then you can be disqualified from running for office again. This is a pipe dream, and nothing that I have read from any legal scholar on any side of the aisle seems to take this particularly seriously, if even just because Hillary Clinton just went through this and it was determined that that wasn't enough for her to not run for office then. This used to be a pet issue on the right. It was very briefly one that I saw on the left. Who knows if it has legs. Other dumb takes that annoyed me on Twitter. The fact that the current head of the FBI, Ray, W-R-A-Y, was appointed by Trump. That seemed to be one that I saw going around. That, oh, well, look, like, oh, the the far left radical Democrats, this dude who was appointed by Trump and is a Republican. How many people do we need to name that have been hired by Donald Trump that now absolutely hate him before we look at that as a dump take, right? He hires people and then either he hates them or they hate him or, you know, both at the same time at an alarming frequency. In fact, it happens so much more than than it seemingly from the outside than him having healthy relationships with almost anybody. So let's talk politics. Politically. And let's assume that what we know now is all we ever know. That this was in regards to the National Archives, and that's it. If we are only talking about classified documents, then after yesterday, Donald Trump 
is a far more compelling candidate to 2024. Number one, congratulations to him. He's already back at the center of the political universe. I guess Democrats are pretty excited about it, too, because they know that Donald Trump gets out the vote for them. But we are no longer in a world where anybody but Donald Trump could realistically be considered the Republican nominee. It is his to choose to 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 walk forward on uh, as of now, because this just reinforced his sole most compelling narrative. He's not the target of the deep state. You are. He's just in the way. Nothing proves that more than a raid on a former president for a process crime. If it is to happen, and an and, and, and indictment is what I'm talking about, it would have to be a smoking gun, a dope-on-the-table situation. I know that that's a very high bar, but what's behind it is the faith of the American people and that law enforcement is being used in a non-political manner. I mean... I'm old enough to remember that there was a time when people cared about norms. What about our norms? Our norms are being trampled. Which brings me to the FBI. I need information, man. I need information. I need somebody from the FBI to talk. Because I know that the original, the the big thing people say right after that, oh, but the FBI never talks. The FBI never talks. Why would they talk now? Well, they don't normally raid presidents' houses either. So apparently this is a new year, new you situation for the old FBI. There is something in the balance here. Because I promise you, no matter how much you hate Trump, you don't want to see this pendulum swing back the other way. You do not. You do not. I waited to record this podcast, by the way. I waited later into the day because I was hoping I'd have something. I was hoping I would get something. I would hope that something would break that would make this a little bit more clear. Because that's the other thing is that anything that is involving Trump is very hard to keep secret. So I tend to believe, even with the FBI, that whatever we hear now is the only thing that they are talking about. Which brings me to totally irresponsible conspiracy hour. Get ready, buckle up. So, Merrick Garland, Department of Justice, is under a lot of pressure, not only from Congress, but also from Democrats, to do something about these January 6 hearings. Are you going to indict the president? Are you going to investigate the president? Well, let's say that Merrick Garland says, you know, unless, again, we have him on tape brainstorming, crafting, and directing the riot on January 6th. Not the morally odious attempt to subvert the election. Because if we're going to get into that, 
If we're going to get into him deputizing the crack team of Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell to try and flip state electors and and make Mike Pence uh, declare a, 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 a reverso on the election, then at that point, we are punishing crackpot legal theories. He had a crackpot legal theory. Crackpots helped him execute it. It didn't work. That's it. If we want to make that criminal, then again, I think we're opening up a gigantic can of worms. So the most visceral thing that you can say is that Donald Trump brainstormed, crafted, and directed the riot. The riot itself, specifically. And let's say you're Merrick Garland and you know that that ain't going to happen. You know, there's likely not any tape that has him saying anything like that. And so everyone's just going to have to be mad about the fact that there are going to be no charges coming from January 6th. Let's say, theoretically, that that's the case. But you got to do something. You got to do something to show that you're not toothless. To show that the January 6th investigation has had a purpose. And you also have this National Archive thing. So maybe what you do is you do something extraordinary. Something that the Federal Bureau of Investigations has never done. You raid a president's house. That's something. And then it just sits there. Like a turd in the punch bowl. And that's it. You did something. You can always say, well, you know, we're investigating, we're investigating, we're investigating. It certainly is going to placate the MSNBC crowd. Hell, Rachel Maddow looked like the proprietor in the third act of Bar Rescue. Just thrilled and amazed what a gift had been given to her. She's going to chew on that bone for at least another few months, certainly leading up to the midterms. So this would be something, as in better than nothing. But then again, that's just a crazy crackpot conspiracy. And, oh boy, I feel like we're going to be up to our ankles in those by the time that you listen to this. Ladies and gentlemen, I am out of here, out of here tomorrow. Uh, I am heading on down to Las Vegas town. I will be at DEF CON. I'll be hanging around the Hack 5 booth. So if you happen to be at DEF CON, then uh, you are likely to either see me there or, uh, <laughs> or the Caesar Cigar Room or the pool. Those are probably the three places that you will see me. The the pool at the link, the Caesar cigar room, (laughs) or the Hack 5 booth. Those are likely going to be the only places I will will exist. That being said, right after that, I'm hopping on a plane. I'm heading to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and I will be there for what is almost certainly going to be the fall of the house Cheney. I had to be there. 
I've never been to Cheyenne, Wyoming. I don't know how many times I'm going to have an opportunity to go back to Cheyenne, Wyoming, but I am going there this week. I will be there on the ground for either the surprise upset of Liz Cheney or what I do believe is going to happen. Harriet Hageman will unseat her in the Republican primary. And we now begin to chart a new vagabond course for one of the most durable names in Republican politics. All of that will happen because of you, because of the people who support me at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Indeed, folks who support us at the $3 level will hear me live from Vegas on Thursday. And by the way, that will be the latest that we have any news on this raid situation. Because I got to record the Friday episode on Wednesday before I leave. So if you want any kind of breakdown on any kind of breaking news, that's the place you get it. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at the $3 level and enjoy twice the amount of episodes that you get on our free feed. I try to make this worth it for you guys. I bust my ass on Sundays so you guys can get the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday program where we take a look at all the Sunday shows. By the way, that's going to be lit this weekend. I'll be doing that live from Vegas too. Anywho, that'll be that. TakePoliticsSeriously.com I will see you there and uh, if you are at DEFCON or in Cheyenne, Wyoming. <laughs> if you're in Cheyenne, Wyoming, tell me which bars are going to be the, the, the places to hang out because I need to get that local color. TakePoliticsSeriously.com thing that Donald Trump sent out to his listserv after that message that I already read to you about the raid was a in case you missed it link to an article pointing out that Donald Trump led the straw poll by a country mile at the recent CPAC event in Dallas. The headline went so far as to say that he was significantly beyond Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida. Folks, I have looked forward to seeing this Godzilla versus King Kong battle from the moment that it seemed like a possibility. To see DeSantis try to take down the Sith Master, apprentice slaying the man who taught him everything that he knows in in terms of becoming a national figure. Meanwhile, on the Trump side, his obsessive focus on 2020, meeting headlong into somebody that has made his bones on everything that happened during Trump's worst moments, the lockdown, the economic swoon, and his loss in the election. Those were when DeSantis shined. Boy, I would love to see it. I don't know if we're going to see it right now, but I do know that DeSantis is trying to burnish his reputation with other Republicans throughout the country. DeSantis will be traveling to New Mexico, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Ohio this month in support of GOP candidates, including Ohio Republican candidate J.D. Vance, 
for Senate. Pennsylvania's GOP gubernatorial candidate, Doug Mastriano. By the way, at the Mastriano rally that I covered that nobody else did, just saying. He shouted out Ron DeSantis and got one of the biggest cheers of the speech that I recorded. Arizona Republican candidate for Senate, Blake Masters, and their GOP nominee for governor, Carrie Lake. These are events being sponsored by Turning Point. It is a youth-directed conservative organization fronted by Charlie Kirk. But one of these things is missing. Number one, we don't have any Georgia candidates on that list. DeSantis isn't going to make the quick hop over the border to go stump for Herschel Walker. But on his trip to Arizona, he's going to stump for both the gubernatorial candidate, Carrie Lake, endorsed by Trump, and Blake Masters, endorsed by Trump. But when he goes to Pennsylvania, at least according to this article, it's a Fox News article, quoted Charlie Kirk, he's only going to be talking to the supporters of Doug Mastriano for governor. Not Dr. Mehmet Oz for Senate. You know, you got to start wondering where is the path for Oz? I know he would certainly benefit from having the rub of Ron, but if he doesn't get it, what does it say about the kind of campaign that he is running? And is this an intentional snub or just something that for whatever reason wasn't able to work? And if it was for some reason not able to work and it was on Oz's side, then his campaign's a total shambles. We will see. Interesting that DeSantis is going out there and, and you know, lending his star power to cam- candidates and campaigns that are not his own. Because, by the way, he's currently running for governor of Florida again. That's also happening. But he's not out there, you know, uh, trying to talk noise about Nikki Freed or Charlie Crist. No, he's going to be out in all these states talking to other people, burnishing his reputation as a national figure. Interesting. You have heard me say it on this show a million times. The only thing that matters in an election is getting people into a booth and having them press your button more than the other guy. But to do that, the people need to know what they are pressing the button for. Crisp, clear, refreshing messaging, like a sip from an ice-cold Coca-Cola. No, this is not sponsored content, but it is a good reminder that while consumer society and politics are not the same, they do share the world of marketing and persuasion. To explain exactly that overlap, we have Jason Voyevich, the author of Marketer-in-Chief, available now where books are sold. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you for having me. Love to be here. With your book, uh, uh, a marketer in chief, where would you say the job of marketing 
a politician starts? Does it start in, in, in the drafting period where they're thinking about their message? Does it draft once they are doing things and they are interacting with the press? When does it begin? Yeah, I would tell you that as a practicing marketing professional, and anyway, it's just the way we think about things. If you wait till you're in front of a reporter with a question, uh, you are way too late. Uh, most corporate communications folks, if you'd actually been in the practice like I have, are kind of gaming out potential, you know, answers, trip lines, all kinds of things well, 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 well in advance. Uh, you think about this when you think about debate prep and, yeah. you know, you're going to be like, hey, Trump and Biden are going to be up on the stage. They're... You know, you've seen those where, hey, who's going to be the stand in for Donald Trump? Who's going to be the stand in yeah. for uh, for Biden? And they practice and they script and rehearse. That's yeah. Yeah, that's for debates. But that process has it, the communications director for any White House is thinking about that on a day to day basis, preparing the president for, OK, here's what this reporter is likely going to ask. Here's the meet what the media cycle is doing today. Let's test run a few different responses. How are you going to phrase that? Are you going to use this word or that word? A good communications director will be on top of that all the time and preparing uh, so that there is a less than average chance that Joe Biden will go off script. Uh, but I would argue that's dangerous for any politician to really start to go off script. It's funny, right, Justin, that when you think about like, who are the best politicians at that? Even like a, hey, Donald Trump is going to go totally off script and he's not listening to anybody. Uh, I actually don't think that's true. And from what I know about his prep, that isn't true. He's thinking about that sort of thing all the time. What is he going to say? What words are he is he going to use? So that he kind of knows how they're going to how they're going to fly. He's not winging it, well, but you know, it that, sounds that's, that's, like he is. Yeah. That's something that I've, I've commented on having covered uh, him live, especially when you're at the rallies. If you haven't been to a rally or watched unbroken video of, of his rallies, then it's hard to appreciate because the rambling and the crazy stuff is, is the stuff that winds up making <laughs> headlines, but he has this, jazz kind of thing where he'll go off on his riffs and the riffs will be boring and they'll be long and they'll be rambling. But when he knows when the crowd is dying or when they're disengaging, that's when he'll play the hits. That's when he'll, that that's when he'll, he'll go into like Pocahontas and everybody will immediately snap back and, and he'll, he'll, right. he'll have that. So it's like, I, I feel like he has these like five or six bullets in the chamber and then he just opines, opines, opines on that and goes on these weird rat holes. But then he'll always bring it back. Like, like there is this element where he knows to bring in the chorus. Yeah, I think that uh, most politicians are good at that, uh, whether they're explicit like that or they get the kind of applause lines that Donald Trump ordinarily gets. Uh, Obama had applause oh, yeah. lines like that. Mm -hmm. uh, Ronald Reagan did. Uh, People like Jimmy Carter did not. And that's part of the problem. Yeah. Where, you know, you need to have a few of those things in for exactly what you just described. Uh, you know, the media is not going to. I mean, how many people have really watched a two hours unbroken of Donald Trump at a rally? 
very, very few people. People don't have the tension span for that. This is kind of a TikTok world. You know, people have six seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds. I, I, I would I would actually disagree with you on that, because I, I think when you look at some of the mediums that are emerging, like Twitch streams and a lot of like, you know, YouTube, even YouTube talent has has become more in the realm of here's my three hour essay on blank, a movie that lasts an hour and a half long. Th- there is an element of him being of his time to have this big space filling, leave it on and and have it uh, occupy your day. Podcasts, uh, uh, you know, another another example of long form. Very content. true. Yeah, it's kind of funny that there's what I've noticed in kind of marketing generally and political marketing specifically mm-hmm. has been kind of this erosion of the middle ground. Exactly what you're talking about. There's kind of TikTok on one side that's gotten shorter and shorter yeah. and shorter. And then on the other side, everything else has gotten longer You know, where podcasts are routinely. I mean, have you ever listened to a Dan Carlin podcast? Oh, yeah. Some of those can be three hours, eight hours. I think there is a there's one on the uh, the Eastern Front of World War Two that's something like 30 or 40 hours that lasts long. as it's, long as World War One. It is, yeah, it it's is a, a full length uh, minute by minute accounting of World War One. Right. Shout right. out to what, Carlin. What a legend. Shout, yeah, absolutely. A shout out to him. Uh, fantastic. So there's this there's this kind of split in the in the media market that I think someone like a Donald Trump has gotten really good at uh, and you don't want to go too much into Donald Trump. Don't want to make it all Trump all the time. He gets enough attention, Uh, but he's very good at getting the being very good at the short, the sound bites, the uh, the nicknames, the, 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 the pithy insults. What he's not as good at and what he is relying on others to be good at, uh, you know, a Crowder or a Tucker or other people like that. He's relying on them to do more of the long form because that's not what he's really good at. And uh, I'm not quite sure. I don't think Biden has kind of either strength. And that's part of the issue is that he sits like most classic politicians sits somewhere in that kind of middle ground where not quite snappy enough to be an applause line, but not quite well put together enough to be a long form kind of really kind of stepping through a policy where someone like a Barack Obama could do that and really kind of sit through. And you would listen to Barack Obama for 20 or 30 minutes. That was not an impossible thing to do. What he would talk about would be coherent. You can agree or disagree, but it was coherent during that time. Uh, And a little bit less good on the, uh, uh, on the applause lines, but he did have a few of them. Uh, I think he was he was a better master of that. And I think a, a marketer in chief in 2024, 2028, uh, 2026, what, you know, must be able to kind of handle both sides of that media environment has got to be able to handle the quick, the applause lines. They've got to be able to put an issue, frame an issue quickly in its place. And be able to spend 15 or 20 minutes with a podcaster and really going deep because people will want that. All right. I want to talk about history real quick. We will get to the uh, Inflation Reduction Act because I want to have a conversation with you about, you know, just omnibus bills in general, but that one in specific. But 
um, you know, for all the history nerds that are listening to it, uh, popular uh, uh, academia, political academia would say that the first modern presidential marketer or at least campaign was Kennedy in 60. Uh, and, and and the famous quote from his team was that we're going to market Jack like soap flakes. So, so look at this as, as if he is a literal product and not just something that is far more of a beltway discussion where you have to make friends and backpath the right people and wait your turn in line. Instead, they wanted to go right to the people, popularize the primaries, blah, 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 blah. Is that how you understand it? Or is there more of a legacy here? Yeah, I think that, Kennedy's team was copying Bruce Barton and Calvin Coolidge's team almost 40 years earlier. And here's uh, when you actually look at that history and it's the biggest part that surprised me because before I wrote marketer in chief, that's exactly what I thought. I I would say, well, where's the most modern, the modern campaign? I'd say, well, Kennedy and Nixon was the first television campaign I might quibble, and the historians out there would quibble with me on, hey, maybe it was Truman, the 1948, yep. the whistle stop campaign. Okay, that's that's a good one. But I really didn't have a good sense for when did candidates become products? When did they become packaged? And it was really Bruce Barton kind of advertising pioneer in the 19-teens and the 20s that really thought about Calvin Coolidge as this kind of nobody, uh, you know, governor of Massachusetts, not really uh, known for his elocution. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was uh, very famously, someone asked, I bet, you know, I bet it's going to take you three words to, you know, describe, you know, you know, to describe something to me. And he said, you lose. You know, uh, he was a man of very few words. And you know, kind of a stern disposition, very classic country club Republican, not the kind of person who you'd think would be uh, make a good politician. But Bruce Barton packaged this guy. He said, hey, with all the chaos that's been happening about the war, the 1918 pandemic, the mm-hmm. Warren Harding administration had imploded. You know, Calvin Coolidge was this rock. He was like granite at and there's so much fascinating stuff around how he packaged him, how he used photography, how he used speeches, how he used all of these little tools, how he appealed to women who could just vote in that election, how he appealed to African-Americans uh, uh, you know, in the United States at that time. But one of the, one of the most interesting things I found in, that kind of really sums it up is before Calvin Coolidge, cool meant you know, temperature. It meant cold, you gotcha. know, slightly cold. After Calvin Coolidge, cool meant cool. You know, really? That, that's, someone, that, is, that, is what, that is what popularized yeah. the term cool, yeah. at meaning good or, or hip? Yeah, good, hip, like kind of this like cool character. He had it under control. He was like, like ice, ice in his veins, like right. uh, uh, that, that kind of cool, like, like that he kind is of cool, stoic uh, uh, as opposed to boring. Exactly. That it wasn't boring. He wasn't boring. He was just, he was cool. He was a cool character. And if you thought like Calvin Coolidge, you know, that those, those mm. hard sounds. Yeah. It was Bruce Barton who put all of that together and, you know, you got to remember that uh, he was the vice president with Warren Harding. Well, Warren Harding died in office. 
And right as he, right as the, the, you know, the grass was regrowing on his grave, uh, people started to figure out that, you know, his administration, the teapot dome scandal, and there's these kind of land schemes and all this grifting, you know, there are a lot of people like, boy, Calvin Coolidge is the president, but is he really the guy we need? And should we really be uh, electing him in the next cycle on his own? And it was really Bruce Barton who put all of that together to create this package uh, of a president. That same playbook, you know, this, you know, kind of using, you know, the average American, kind of the silent majority. He came up with the term silent majority. Yeah. Uh, You know, so that wasn't kind of a Nixon thing. Nixon borrowed that uh, from Calvin Coolidge uh, way back when. So that was the big inflection point uh, between kind of what happened before and what happened after with regards to political marketing. Uh, And it's funny that that coincides right at the point where you had the birth of consumer culture in the 1920s, the, the automobile, the refrigerator you know, the iron, like all of these kind of different consumer products came out at around that time. So it was really natural. All the advertising people at the time were trained to do that. And it it wasn't, you know, Bruce Barton had a commercial advertising career. He was involved in Betty Crocker. He was involved in all manner of products. It's not a big leap for him to say, well, we can use the same techniques we use to sell breakfast cereal. We can sell presidents. Why not? So tell me what I'm leaving out here. What you want to do in either of those situations is to define the problem, define the product, so the the, the candidate or or the product that you're selling, and then define exactly why that product or 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 president will solve that problem. Right? Are, are, is that kind of the, the 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 three key things you need to do? Yeah, I I like that format. I mean, you're you know, it's really how you sell any other product is you think, okay, there's people have a problem they want solved. You know, they've got a, you know, they have a job that they want to get done. There's a product that they need to that. Okay. Well, what's the offer that would, that would solve that? What benefits would you get by adopting this product, by voting for this person? And then the one that kind of the number four that often gets left out is what's your next best alternative? So oh, why, how much better this solution is than the rest of the pack. That's right. And in politics, that's in, it's just crystal clear on a, sometimes it gets a little confusing in marketing where, you know, there are some things where there aren't great alternatives to a product or the best alternative might be not buying one, you know? Yeah. So you say, well, I, I'd want a new pair of glasses. It's, you know, there's a need, there's a product. You know, there are benefits I would get, but if my current glasses are fine, I might not want to buy new glasses. I might, I might just wait on that decision. In politics, you don't really get that same, you know, their elections happen at, you know, at certain intervals. So, and there's almost always competition unless you're, you know, in a ridiculously gerrymandered district, Uh, there's always competition. And there's well, certainly and even, then, the there's, there, even even then there's competition on the primary side when when you yeah, when you look at right. that so you have you have to define yourself against people in your own party. Yeah, that that is it's it's so refreshing to hear you talk about that because I I, I tend to get into arguments 
with uh, some of my more ideological friends when I get into the kind of uh, uh, nuts and bolts of of politics that it's like, hey, look, you have to know what you say. In fact, Andrew Heaton, who introduced us uh, uh, to come on this show, I have another show with him. We were arguing about the forward party uh, specifically because he was he was saying, oh, well, what a what a, a great idea they have. They're going to be able to pull people in from Republicans and Democrats. They might run in Republican and Democratic primaries. And the only thing that they're going to agree on is electoral reform, to which I said, well, then what's the point of them even being in the in the forward party if they're not going to run as a forward party candidate and be electoral reform? Important, though, it might be. I don't want your emails, but like uh, 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 it's not the number one thing. It's not the problem for which you need to run out of your house as if it's on fire and go to the voting booth about. That's it. You know, I. I get it. I mean, it's that difference between kind of immediate. Well, like what benefits what's in it for me right now? Yeah. And then what's in it for me kind of long term with structural reform? And it's. You know, when I talk with people who do healthcare marketing, for instance, that's become uh, many of those people are oddly popular over the last couple of years and they really didn't want to be. Uh, <laughs> they struggle with things like, hey, we know what the keys to health are. They're really not that hard. You eat good food, not too much of it. You yep. get good exercise. You keep your stress and uh, under control. You live in a you know decent environment where you're not exposed to you yeah. know, to toxins. Or you don't take good good, you know, good sleep. Drink more water. Good sleep. Like, yeah, just basic it. stuff like that. Uh, but it's really really difficult to get people to do those things because they are long term. They're systemic. They're structural. They're boring. Uh, things like hey, I can give you a pill and it will take care of it. Or hey, there's this new superfood. If I have blueberries, acai, and coconut milk in some smoothie that's going to be this secret to health and yeah most doctors and nutritionists are like god if you just ate less you'd be fine but you know uh there's we always want that that's something about consumer culture that's a little uh, that's part of america's dna that has been for the past hundred years it's very difficult for us to kind of extract ourselves from to think about Thinking long term is not an easy thing. So I think about things like electoral reform that might take, you know, a, a decade, two decades yeah. to get done. If you really focused on it, that is very difficult to do unless you've got something that could say, uh, you know, think about how long it took, uh, you know, from a kind of a right wing point of view. Think about how long it took to overcome Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Oh, 50 years. You know, but a yeah, long and, time and that's the thing with, with that. Yeah, with, with, with that specific issue, I tend to believe that you need to have a popular candidate from a party that is being hurt by those ballot access things that beats right. it, that exactly. does the impossible and then says, hey, do you want more people like me? This is why we need to do this right now, as opposed to conceptually saying, wouldn't it be better if people that weren't in these parties ran more or were easy to run more? Anyway, I, I don't want to get bogged down on this. I've already talked too much about electoral reform <laughs> in the last month for, you know, the, the, the you know, a year's worth. Let's go to the the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, uh, which I feel like it's fitting that it shares the acronym of uh, the Irish Republican Army and all of the hearkening back to the troubles of of Ireland, because 
Uh, I don't know exactly how much it does for inflation. Uh, the thing that most of my liberal friends have talked about it that are excited about it are climate change. Uh, uh, the most controversial elements uh, about it are for insulin caps. And also we're arguing about EV chargers. So uh, uh, this does not seem to me, Jason, based on what we have described, it, it seems very, very heavy on problems that it's defining. It, it does not seem very strong on solutions. And that's part of the trouble in politics with omnibus bills and things like that. I mean, you'd never sell a product that way. If you, if you think about it for a second, you would just never try to pack that many things in and convince. I mean, imagine going to the Toyota dealer and thinking, OK, I've got a problem. I need a new car. And they say, well, that's great. We have a car and we also have this subscription to this food delivery service, we're also going to do that. And you know what? I think you're, you know, you could use a little home remodeling. You know, we're going to, you know, you're going to, you know, do some new wall coverings in that bedroom or kind of remodel a spare bathroom for you. And, you know, you need a little bit of a kind of a clothing makeover too. I mean, it's just, it's a bizarre way to approach things. And the problem really is, is that, what how exactly are you going to sell that my my prediction is it's going to be very difficult in the midterms and especially in the next election where people start to forget about the specifics how exactly are they going to sell this uh to the american public it's kind of a grab bag of a lot of different things on one side of that ledger you can say there are a lot of things that i could talk about in here so if i'm in a district where Climate change is a really big deal. I can beat that drum. In another district where it's all about, you know, uh, Medicare drug prices, I can talk about that a little bit. Great. It's very difficult, though, when you think about at the top of the ticket, when you think about uh, Joe Biden and what does he do? Uh, Joe Biden is not the strongest communicator as a president we've had. And to be able to kind of weave all of this together into something that seems coherent and doesn't seem like just kind of throwing a bunch of things against the wall uh, will be very difficult to pull off. And it might not be a very popular opinion. I think whether or not it's good legislation is a question I'm not quite qualified to answer. I have not read the 755 page bill. Mm -hmm. uh, I will tell you, though, that uh, as a professional communicator and persuader, uh, my advice would be to pick whatever you think would be the most, the sharpest, uh, uh, sharpest spear in that quiver, sharpest arrow in the quiver, and go for it. Otherwise, it's too many things to talk about. The more you talk about different things, the more I'm not going to focus on anything. Right? Think about walking into a store and you say, hey, I need a new shirt. And they show you 50 new shirts or they show you two new shirts and they ask you to pick one. You know, yeah. it's it's so much easier to sell something simple than it is to sell kind of this omnibus, kind of this big transformative change. Because uh, they're just as many places as you can go and you can get in and you can, you know, try to tout a particular angle. You have left yourself open to that many other things or say, hey, there's a big climate change is important in my district, your opponent will pick at all the other pieces of that that you're not talking about. 
Yeah, like the 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 tax uh, the IRS you know uh, hiring thing. It's like eighty seven thousand new IRS. So the 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 Republicans are already doing that. If I were to play advocate for the Democrats, I would say that the this does help them on a few marketing levels. Number one, especially since they went all in on Build Back Better. Uh, you know, for such a substantial part of Biden's first year, they then tried to to uh, uh, go all in on voting rights. Both times they came up empty handed, despite the fact that they controlled all three houses of uh, or sorry, all, all three wings of power, the, the House, the Senate and the presidency. They needed to do a thing. And so they've yes. done bipartisan stuff. So now they can go back and say, look, we're not useless when we have power this is a reason to keep us in power. We did a thing. The other thing is that, that yes, it's an omnibus bill. It has literally no definition. The thing it's named after won't happen question mark for another year. And that's according to the Democrats that voted for it. So at the very least, you have this skeleton key of here's what matters to you locally. I, what I predict is no one's going to talk about the inflation reduction act within the next uh, 30 no. days, people will talk about voting for green energy, voting for uh, uh, insulin caps, voting for blah, blah, blah. You know, th- th- that's, I think, what this will be colloquially known as locally. Yeah, I think it's going to be known as whatever you want it to be known as in your district. Where what does it need to be known as? And if I were the Democrats right now, that is the strategy available to them. Uh, two yeah. things. Uh, that's number one. The I totally agree with you on. You had to be able to do something. Uh, yeah. Because you know Roe v. Wade and any kind of lingering anger about that or lingering kind of motivation about that. We're still, you know, you know how far are we from you know the midterms? They needed something. The Democrats needed something close enough to the midterms to be able to kind of be within memory. And I would say just based on my experience and my reading that Roe v. Wade has started to drift a little bit out of that immediate memory. It's not that it's not a big deal to a lot of people. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying for the average person who it doesn't impact their life and most voters are out of that area where that's directly impacting them because they tend to be older. It's just not, you know, the further away you get from that, the less urgent it is when you're walking into the voting booth when other things may have supplanted it uh, at that time. Paradoxically, the decision in Kansas may have tamped down a little bit of that, you know, motivation. Say, well, okay, the 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 fight's not at the federal level. The fight is the at, fight the, is state at the state level. level. Yeah. Right. So, okay, well, that's taken a little bit of the wind out of that sail and it has redirected it at the state level. So it's changed the map. It's changed that electoral map a little bit and kind of that persuasion map. Uh, But I think having something this close to the midterms and having a lot of things you could talk about and you as a local candidate, District 5, Minnesota, you know exactly what you want to talk about. You're going to pick the things out of that bill. That yeah. whether or not you voted for it doesn't matter. It really matters what got done on your watch and what things are going to matter most to the people in your district. Uh, that part of the strategy is good. 
when I lay it, when I kind of ladder it up to the president, uh, it's a it's a non-starter. There's got to be other things that happen in the final two years that he would run on if he chooses to run again. The issue I see is kind of the middle ground. I call that kind of the senatorial races, this, you know, the full state races where you've got a little bit, you know, it doesn't matter in Wyoming. They only have one congressional district anyway, but it matters in a place like California, New York, Texas, Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, places like that where a candidate has got to be able to run on a statewide kind of a statewide platform. In that case, it's going to be difficult to pick things out of that that are going to have that same kind of hyper-targeted appeal to an urban district in Minneapolis, where I live, versus a kind of a rural district in outstate Minnesota are going to have very different concerns. But a senatorial candidate's got to be got to be able to balance those two things. That's going to be tricky. Uh, so I think the Senate's going to be the tricky place for Democrats to hold uh, uh, in the midterms. I would agree with you totally. And and the only thing I would add on the abortion topic is I think that there's a reason why Democrats are trying to do whatever they can to put anything with uh, uh, the A word in a referendum for this uh, uh, and, and possibly every future election day going forward, because this seems to be an issue, at least according to Kansas, where not only could you motivate your Democratic base, but also eat into some of the suburban Republican base, which is what happened in Kansas. You don't need a lot of it. I mean, again, this is like when we talk about the Republicans eating into, uh, you know, voters of color. You don't need to do a ton. You don't need to win. You just need you just need to eat in enough to win. Yeah, totally agreed. I mean, the Republicans over the past two cycles have eaten into the African-American vote. They've eaten into the especially the Hispanic vote. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of the Latin vote, whether that's from Mexico, Cuba, Cuba, or most Cubans are usually Republicans anyway, at least a lot of them are. Uh, but the rest of the, you know, the uh, Latin culture, uh, Latin voters in the United States are a bit more up for grabs. Uh, so, yeah, the Democrats kind of making that competitive and starting to peel off uh, suburban voters, uh, especially suburban women would be I like to see the competition. I think competition generally, a lot of people don't like that. They feel like, oh, we we should all just get along. What they really mean is everyone should get along with what I want. Yes. Uh, (laughs) In reality, though, just, you know, as a, you know, as a marketing professional, I know that the best markets, the customer is best served by a, you know, a vigorous competition against good alternatives. That's where you tend to get the best products, the best service. Anytime you start to reduce options, you start to get more of a monopoly. Uh, service tends to decline. Uh, we know it, 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 it happens all the time. I like seeing this level of competitiveness. I like it that, hey, each state is going to have to figure out where it stands on abortion. Uh, I'm not making a moral or ideological case. Uh, uh, that's a I consider that kind of a different issue. Uh, my point of view is a practical one. How do we get the best outcome? And this is a really good way to get a good outcome. And I think it should give everyone pause in Kansas, Kansas of all places, that that issue is competitive. That yeah. that is going to help detoxify a lot of the political 
uh, a lot of politics that's been around in that. I mean, just uh, as a historian, you take a look at how toxic prohibition was, uh, yeah. not just in the 1920s, but the 50 years prior to prohibition was one of the most toxic periods in political history. Whether you were a wet or a dry, it was this single issue like abortion that just it, it just skewed politics in a really destructive way. Uh, if you think, well, who were the great presidents during that time? You can probably pick one, maybe Teddy Roosevelt. That was it. Yeah. That's all we had during that time that were standouts. You really needed to get to FDR. And coincidentally, that's just at about the time, right when he took office, is when that started to, uh, you know, prohibition was eventually repealed, right as he was uh, taking office. And again, I, the thing I'm happy to see go about the abortion debate is the binary choice. Yeah. That actually having a debate, actually being able to talk about it in a more adult way is probably is going to uh, help. Uh, it, I think it will definitely help the political environment have a, be more responsive to the average person to what they want. Yeah, it's fascinating because Roe versus Wade is something that traditionally was very, very popular because it represented an end to this conversation. Uh, and yet, uh, uh, without it, where you actually have to discuss the kind of particulars of this issue, I think does bring us probably to a closer middle ground. Uh, uh, you can read these kinds of insights and much more in Jason Voyevich's new book, Marketer and Chief. Uh, is there anything else that you want to uh, tell everybody here? No, I appreciate it. I I appreciate the chance in the in the book. If you are interested in geeking out on history, uh, yeah, we geek out. It is uh, not quite rated PG thirteen, uh, just for the <laughs> for the kids in the audience. Yeah, uh, don't don't, ad- don't give it to Junior. Yeah, there is some adult language. I suspect your teenager will actually really like this history book. So if you if you want to give it to them. Uh, that probably will help. I've heard from other teens that they like it. It's the first history book they've read, which I'm not sure if I should take that as a compliment or not, Uh, (laughs) but uh, it covers every single president. So all of them, not just the, the really good communicators and good marketers, it's uh, everyone's in there. And it's, uh, I just so deeply enjoy doing it. I had such fun. You'll, it'll be fun to read it. That's, that's all I'm going to say. You'll enjoy it. All right. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you. Appreciate it. Politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you would like to support our guests here, head on over to letter P, letter X, number three, guest.com. Of course, you can always send us an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter for the program is px3tweets. You can follow me live on my Twitch channel, px3live. And our newsletter, which is back. It's back. The free political newsletter is back. px3newsletter.com. Of course, you can share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy members at px3podcast.com. And if you would like to support us, you can do so in a one-time fashion. Just send me a buck. Send me a couple bucks. I will use them to tip bartenders in Cheyenne, Wyoming. 
PayPal is paypal.me slash payjury. Venmo, Justin-Young-20. Cash app is PX3Cash, and you can send me anything you would like physically in the mail. P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. The only place you can get bonus content, by the way. $3 tier gets you two bonus episodes covering all the stuff we miss on our free podcast schedule. And, of course, the $10 tier not only gets you that, Get your name right at the end of the program like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. MC Dradio, Unsafe DB Levels, Katie, Amanda, Ye Old Pinball Shop, DP4 Bongo, Neemeister, Catherine, V-Guard, Todd, persons familiar with the matter, and vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Edison, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B-A, select, start, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, Idris, Arslanian, Blue Front and the Lenina, DL, Stephen, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Diana, Shrill, Shrieks, Marina, Janelle, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome. Brad, Richard, D Laser, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age, Mike Who Loves, Frank Got Abducted, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, The Gen, A L D L D L D. Really? Chopper. Andrew and Joshua. You want your name read along with all those fine, beautiful, amazing folks? Well, only one place you go. TakePoliticsSeriously.com I am very excited for our episode on Friday. I'm thrilled for our episode on Friday. Because our episode on Friday is going to feature the voice of a man for whom I greatly admire as a podcaster. He does a show called C-SPAN's The Weekly. If you have never heard C-SPAN's The Weekly, then I encourage you in the two days we have between then and now to listen to it. They are very short episodes. They are very pleasant. And I dare you to listen to it and not be charmed by both the premise and the host. Because this man, every single week, based on what's happening in politics, goes back into the C-SPAN archives and finds great audio. Great audio. And you know that I am a nerd for political history, and I am an even greater nerd for political archive audio. Howard Mortman, on the program, on Friday. Oh, it's going to be good. Till then. Your old pal Justin Robert Young saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.